The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Were you, were you in town for the 4th of July? Uh, when was that? Uh, let's see, it was, uh, we celebrated it Monday. Monday, Monday. Yeah. Monday. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, I, th- I thought there was a lot of uh, gunplay, you know, for New York on Monday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even for New York, a lot Even of Even for yeah. New York, yeah. Now, does that holiday, I guess, means nothing to you, does it? No, we don't, we don't celebrate Independence Day in England. No, we... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, we, uh, we celebrate the day before. Yeah. We celebrate uh, Dependence Day. I see. Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> we, we have these models of uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Hancock, you know, uh-huh. uh, in effigy, and we, uh, we jeer them. We say, uh, <laughs> isn't it about time you came a little bit more independent? That kind of uh, thing. I see. Know, just, uh, do you... Do, uh, uh, are there actually people living over there who who uh, from generation to generation have had a grudge passed down to them and are still walking around holding it against the uh, Americans for... Oh, I think so. Really? Yes, not as much as against the French, who are our natural enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been fighting them for a thousand years. Yeah. The two events of the, this century being mere aberration in this pattern. Yeah. No, we hate the French, basically. <laughs> and um, <laughs> if we have to fight anyone, I'd, I'd say let's fight the French. All right, good. Yeah, let's, let's do it. That's John Cleese talking to David Letterman in 1988, talking about the long-standing rivalry between the English and the French. That rivalry has spilled over a few times into conflict. They are 20 miles apart at their closest point, separated by nothing but a thin strip of water that engineers can tunnel under and elite swimmers can swim across. 20 miles. That's a walkable distance on dry land. You can walk that in a single day. You could bike it in an hour. You could make the crossing from England to France 10 times and still not travel as much distance as a person going from New York City to Boston. These are close neighbors we're talking about. Very close, like unfriendly relatives sharing a flat. Two strong-headed, proud, willful relatives forced to share an apartment, running a strip of tape down the middle to preserve some autonomy. Not everyone honors that little strip of tape. 50,000 people use the channel every day to cross between England and France. Almost as many take the ferries. 30 million or so every year make the crossing, not counting those who fly. French schoolchildren grow up learning English and vice versa. Parisians go to London on holiday and vice versa. Music crosses the channel easily, and so does fashion, and so does cuisine. But what about literature? Authors like the English writer Julian Barnes are proud Francophiles. The French writer José Alain Frallon called England our most dear enemies. So how do we make this into a show? England versus France? Well, wait, why don't we explain what our show is first? I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of literature. Okay, we got that out of the way. We are slaves to tradition here, aren't we? Maybe that's appropriate for our topic today, since there could hardly be two countries more in love with their own traditions than England and France, and this might play its part in the animosity between the two nations. They've fought many wars. As John Cleese said, the 20th century alliances are the aberrations, not the norm. 
Speaking of Norm, it was the Norman invasion. Oh, jeez. Oh, who writes this stuff? You know, it's not me, right? It's an intern. Speaking of Norm, it was the Norman invasion. What is, it's like a television show. That's what this script sounds like. A bad television show when the writers are just phoning it in or a, a bad op-ed piece written to fill up words. Like the guy who was New York Times guy recently, he was writing about the coronavirus in New York and he said, New York has a neighborhood called Corona, which ironically was one of the worst hit neighborhoods in the city. How offensive is that? Like that has anything to do with anything. In the middle of a tragedy and you're coming up with little puns and insightful Word coincidences. So what? So you made a little connection? Just filling up. We're paid by the word. I'm not paid by the word. But here's what I have to work with. Speaking of Norm, it was the Norman invade. You know, <laughs> this would be interesting if it were Norms that invaded. Not Normans, the people. But an invasion of Norms. Social, or maybe guys named Norm. How about that? An army full of Norms. Normans. <laughs> uh, an invasion of Norms. Social Norms. That would be interesting. A sneaky invasion of cultural norms, ideas, influence, art. That's a lot closer to what we're talking about today, actually. But we'll get there. Uh, here we go. Speaking of Norms, it was the Norman Conquest. It kicked things off in 1066. Wars continued apace. There was the Hundred Years' War, a series of wars that stretched out over 116 years, and then the Second Hundred Years' War, which was another collection of wars. Let me stop there. It's going to make the point that they, they couldn't be contained with just 100 years. They had 100 years' wars that lasted longer than 100 years, but now I have something interesting on my mind. Something more interesting. A collection of wars. Have you heard that expression before? Series of wars. Collection of wars. That's what I said. Are those the right words for a group of wars? Is that the right collective noun? A bunch of wars? What is the right word? I looked it up. It turns out that there is no collective noun for wars. You know what collective nouns are, right? A herd of elephants, a pride of lions, a flock of seagulls. A murder of crows, an exaltation of larks, a coven of witches, a murmuration of starlings. These are all good to know. Some of them are quite impressive, very inventive. You don't have a, a batch of parrots. You have a prattle of parrots. Butterflies don't arrive in a, a group. They arrive in a rainbow. Some of these collective nouns clearly come from our view of the thing itself, rather than what the group looks like. A memory of elephants, for example. An invention of machines. But no one has given war a collective noun. We're adrift when it comes to multiple wars. Well, we need them for the English and the French because they had so many. Time to change our paucity of collective nouns. We've come up with the answer here at the History of Literature podcast. I know, I know. Why not just use a squadron of wars, a battalion of wars? It works fine for airplanes and military troops. 
after all? Or how about a snatch of oars, which is used for pickpockets? I thought about using a mess of wars, which is currently working just fine for officers, grits, and iguanas. A litter of wars is not bad, and a gang of wars is pretty good. And I thought about getting very creative. A Hitler of wars, a Caesar of wars, an Attila of wars, a Napoleon of wars. Now we're getting somewhere. Maybe we can frame wars in a certain way here. A Washington of wars. A Churchill of wars. Or maybe we should go cutesy. A fun of wars. Fun is already used for fish when you're not using school. A gaggle of wars. Or we can borrow from chihuahuas and call it a yap of wars. Or borrow from lasers and call it a zap of wars borrow from gorillas and call it a whoop of wars. That's not bad. But no, I don't think those are quite right. I think I've found the answer. From now on, we go, wait, do we have some music for this? There we go. From now on, a group or collective of wars will be called collectively monger of wars. You're welcome. English language. Back to our story. England and France have sought... have sought several. I blew it! The big run-up to our big use of the phrase. England and France have not sought several. They've fought several mongers of wars throughout the past thousand years. Wars for territory and religion and rule. What does it mean for one side to be victorious? They impose their will, they impose their culture, they impose their language. And that's where things get interesting from a literary perspective. What would it have meant for Gustave Flaubert had things gone differently and he was living under Queen Victoria and speaking English rather than living in the French Second Republic and the Second House of Bonaparte? What if Shakespeare, instead of living under Elizabeth, newly triumphant against the Spanish Armada, where Shakespeare is proud to be English and making little jokes about France and the French language? What if he was instead living under a French king and making his little cracks about English? Would he have ever risen to the heights he rose to had he been not speaking the language of Chaucer and Spencer and Sidney? If he did not have the pride of Elizabethan England on the rise to be the wind at his sails? And what if we turned things around a bit? What if literature didn't follow leadership, but what if it was leadership that followed literature? What if the battleground was not fought with the sword but the pen? What if these issues were decided by the great authors that each country or each culture could produce? That's what we're exploring today, a battalion of authors suiting up in their armor, getting ready to fight for their heritage. France and England, on the eve of the battle, sending forth their greatest literary minds to fight for cultural and linguistic supremacy, to fight on the battlefield of literature. A battle royale, 
with Mike Palindrome after this. Michelle, my bell, these are words that go together well, my Michelle. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Until I find a way, I will say the only words I Okay, joining me now for what I'm sure will be a highly unusual conversation is our highly unusual, no, our highly usual conversationalist, our old friend, Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's here to help us fight an imaginary cultural battle, England versus France. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So before we begin, I wanted to ask you about something that I noticed on Twitter you are reading mm-hmm. War and Peace with an online group, 12 pages a day or something like that. And I noticed this exchange with one of your fellow Tolstoyans, uh, a person who wrote, every day I read my assigned pages of War and Peace for Tolstoy, hashtag Tolstoy together. I read one, I read one Emily Dickinson poem and I read about 20 pages of Don Quixote for my book club with two other writers. <laughs> and you replied, love it. My reading schedule is, and then you go through what you read. Mike, you are on the record as saying that Don Quixote is the most overrated work in literature. Your animosity toward that work has been legendary here on the History of Literature podcast. I've suffered from your attacks on that great Spanish classic. I do all this damage control from the emails I get from outraged Spaniards and others. And here you are in public backing down like a coward. Love it. 
<laughs> why didn't you why did you take on Don Quixote in public? What was the time? What was the time of that tweet? <laughs> that, that could have been after many bottles of wine. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't a, a general softening. It was the you're going to blame it on the grape. I got into one argument on Twitter with somebody, um, and afterwards I really regretted it because <laughs> I, I just think that it makes people courageous to to hide yeah. behind their Twitter account. Yeah, I so, agree. I mean, until the day where people know each other and and it's so everything there's like an inner inside twitter that they can set up and it'd be kind of like like if when people are attacking each other for misspellings or or punctuation stuff and you kind of think you know like that's the problem with attacking people on twitter is it's so hard to get your meaning across and everything lacks context and everything lacks the exception that would prove the rule you know and it's sort of like it just as a form, you just think the form is so limited. You're not attacking people at their best. You're you're just shooting fish in a barrel, one after the other. Yeah, I mean, here's what I was thinking when I wrote "Love It." I'm I'm just so glad to see people tackling <laughs> long works, even the ones that I think are, you know, yep. not not so great. But I mean, better better Don Quixote. Maybe this is my new mantra: better Don Quixote than The Voice and Breaking Bad. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. So let me describe what I think we're doing here today. We're taking a look at two longtime rivals, England and France. These countries have fought mm-hmm. wars against each other. And the idea is well, England wanted to impose its system and culture on France and vice versa. So we have two, two ideas, I think. One is well, what if that had happened? What if England ruled France or France ruled England? Would literature be better off? It's kind of like saying if Germany had won World War II, we'd all be speaking German. Would that be better? Would our food be better? Would our books be better? And all of that. And there's a second way to look at this, which is to say if the battle was carried out by literary culture instead of by soldiers, who would win? So you we're picking, we're each going to pick an army of five great authors and I'm going to put my five up against yours and we will see whose literature is the strongest. If the battle were, we're not soldiers and, and generals, but novelists and poets who would carry the day. So I'm taking England and you're taking France. I'm probably a bit of an Anglophile, but you are mm-hmm. definitely a Francophile. Wouldn't you say? I was going to say before I became an Anglophile and an Arsenal fan and an Isherwood you know, Evelyn Waugh, <laughs> devotee. I was, I was a Francophile. So, France is definitely yeah. my, my first love, my first inferiority complex, my first. Oh, yeah, yeah your yeah. first inferiority complex. Yeah, so. that's interesting because it's like the only place that Manhattan might feel like it could take a, a backseat to, right? It doesn't. It, 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 it looks down at Los Angeles or San Francisco or or Chicago yeah. or, or New Orleans or anything else. Looks down its nose, even at London. But Paris, no. No, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all the cliches about drinking wine and eating cheese and, you know, being, um, you know, a, a, a film connoisseur. And oh, yeah. Snob. It's all true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I I have to say I came into this 
as I was preparing, thinking that it would be a complete route. And I kind of still think that I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to handicap things a little bit because I'm a native English speaker. So I, I realize mm. I might be a little biased here, but even so, I think I have the, the stronger side. And to make things a little harder, I didn't include Scotland or Ireland. This is England only. Yeah. Um, so let's, I'll let you pick first. Who is heading up your army? Which Frenchman or Frenchwoman is your number one pick? It's just funny to think of these guys as part of an army, but <laughs> especially bedridden crews. It's like, like a I'm, it's like a Monty Python sketch. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the yeah they they have that great sketch the it's like the, the, the World Cup match yeah. philosoph- <laughs> the German philosophers versus the the Greek philosophers and the, all of them are walking really slowly, ignoring the ball. Yeah, yeah it's uh, no. So I go with Proust. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to read a little bit from the last volume because I think, you know, it, um, I'll be the first to admit that it's just it, it, very intimidating reading Remembrance of Things Past. Um, and it, it does try your patience the way any long book does. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's kind of really no reason to keep on reading. And, and, and you know, that's like the strangest recommendation. Yeah. Um, other than you love, you start to love the book. And yeah. if I can be a little spiritual, the book starts to love you back. I think you, you know, yeah. you really, it starts to like pay off. It does. And you start to, it feels like a lot of the things at the end were earned, that it was oh, unexpectedly yeah. earned, where I'm kind of, re- I was reading the final volume and thinking, oh my God, I didn't think it was all going to tie in together like this. It didn't feel, it didn't have that feel. It wasn't like strands of plot that were all going to come together and you were going to see who was going to live happily ever after and that kind of thing, like a like a, a Dickens serial novel or something. But it, I, I remember reading the final volume and thinking, yeah. I, I can't believe I would have ever thought of not getting to this because it is so rewarding to read the final volume. Yeah, I mean, they, in the last volume, you have lines like, was she not at are not indeed the majority of human beings like one of those star-shaped crossroads in a forest where roads converge that have come in the forest as in our lives from the most diverse quarters Mm. i mean it's just you know all the characters just coming together and the feeling that you know the time has been well spent reading this this work like sentence by sentence you know you can you can almost pick sentences at random um Mm -hmm. and you know the difficulty of this book is i think like david foster wallace the kind of part of the reward is that you couldn't write a book that was tightly plotted that was as just world encompassing the Mm -hmm. way Bruce did i mean no no you know every plot would just seem you know a, a book this long with that much plot would seem so gimmicky. Yeah, and it it feels like you learn a lot from Proust as you're reading that he's he's thought through issues like time and memory and he's got interesting theories about all those things and about art and about you know music and you just feel like he's not only giving you character studies but he's also giving you these it's like philosophical essays. Oh yeah, I mean it's you know you almost forget where you are Mm-hmm. Um, when you're reading some of these passages and then when he takes you back to his world, it's, it's like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. It's so well done. 
when I was rereading it in preparation, I, I was thinking like, you could just kind of just reread Proust. If, if, if I had to pick one book, I know I've always touted Magic Mountain, but I mean, maybe <laughs> depending on how long I was stranded, I should be reading Proust. Okay, well, that's a great number one. And I will say, I, I hate to concede this right from the start, but I did <laughs> say that looking looking over as I was doing my scouting of your army, I, uh, I did think there were two that could probably make it into my five, and Proust was one of them. So <laughs> that's a good pick. So he will be... You know, I'm picturing him in his uh, bed being wheeled onto the battlefield. <laughs> did, did you did you know this that he paid? I, I I was reading a little a little tidbit that apparently uh, he paid for reviews praising his work to go into the newspapers. Oh, right. And it's been it's been revealed in correspondence <laughs> that he he deliberately wanted it phrased certain ways so that no one could tie it back to him. <laughs> That just seemed very French uh, to me. Yeah, well, it's very little Marcel. It's very uh, feels <laughs> yeah. like him. You know, he tries so hard. That's the other thing is when you read it, as it goes on, you also start to admire him just for the project of it. Yeah, you know it's, that it's like, oh, this guy is—he's killing himself to write this thing. He's devoting his life to this book. Okay, so for my number one, I'm going to take William Shakespeare. <laughs> Mike, I could probably win this just on Shakespeare alone. I could take five Shakespeare plays and beat most countries, including France, I think. I, I don't think this is just because I'm an English speaker. I don't pretend that England or America has the best composers or painters, but when it comes mm -hmm. to literature, Shakespeare is as good as anyone the world has produced, and he's as good as anyone the world has produced at doing anything. Uh, it's, it's, he's Einstein or, or Newton. He's, there's no, there's no French equivalent and maybe there's no equivalent in any language except maybe Dante. I, I just think he's, uh, maybe Tolstoy. Although when we do our Cold War episode, I'm sure I'll have some, some thoughts on <laughs> Tolstoy, but you know, you, you have French playwrights. I don't know if you're going to take any of them, but they have a couple of masterpieces at the most. And Shakespeare has 15 or 20. So I would keep going here, but I think it would be piling on a little bit. Everybody knows Shakespeare. Everybody, he's like associated with with writing and the, the notion of a writer. And mm -hmm. I also, as I was doing this, I decided that I would choose, you know, sort of five generals to, to lead the divisions of my army. But I'll mm -hmm. have people backing him up in the field from his era. Uh, I won't take two from any one era. So backing him up in the field, I've got John Dunn and John Milton. I'm reaching back for Chaucer. I've got Spencer and Sidney, Ben Johnson and Christopher Marlowe. This mm -hmm. is a battalion ready to follow their leader mm -hmm. into battle. He's not lying down in bed. He's he's up. He's active. He's got a, a sword at his side. All right. So against that army, <laughs> I bring you the the individual assassin, Flaubert. Oh, <laughs> you have now named the two that I thought uh, might make it into my five. I mean, you know, compared <laughs> to Flaubert's perfectionism, yep. you could say, you know, a number of Brits are garrulous and wordy and mm. kind of waste your time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm thinking of Dickens. Yeah. 
you know, and I think, you know, Flaubert, of course, known for the soul mot juste, the, mm-hmm. searching for the right word for weeks. Yeah. Um, he changed the game. Basically the father of realism. Yep. Literary realism. Um, yep. Madame Bovary, possibly the greatest novel under, I don't know, 500 pages. I mean, I know like the heavy weights, like Portrait of a Lady and brothers karamazov but i mean madame bovary if if just line by line it's just a beautiful beautiful novel i mean it's it's incredible that it was i didn't know this but he was put on trial for obscenity yeah um right well it's pretty racy for his time i mean it was it was anti-bourgeois you know yeah yeah um that it, it could disturb it could I guess the fear was that it would cause all of these unhappily married women to run out and have affairs. And and here's my, you know, the thing with Flaubert is that possibly the most influential writer ever. Yeah. I mean, the the, the he he lay the he groundwork the novel. Yeah. For the way you could, for you, the way you could structure the novel and the way he wrote. I mean, you. You couldn't read, you can't read Flaubert quickly. Yeah. But you know, it's a little bit, you could, you could see a backlash coming to that too. It's a little like those albums, you know, when bands go through this thing and then they go in the studio and they spend a year making an album and then they say, you know what? Let's just record one really fast. We got to record one in a week because we're making mm-hmm. it too precious. We're we're overworking it. We're spending, you know, a whole week just to get the cowbell right on this one song or something. And and they lose some of the spontaneity, some of the freshness, some of the excitement, some of the energy. There's a little bit of that post Flaubert too. That I think it stymied a lot of writers to think I've got to have every Every description has got to be perfect. Every word has to be in place. And for a whole novel, sometimes mm-hmm. you can lose some of the, you know, you, you picture some some writers just writing, revising, 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 and losing mm-hmm. some of the freshness that they would have if they had used Dickens as their Well, model, well luckily, for a French uh, writer later on uh, re-energizes uh, the literary landscape. Oh, is and, that going to be one of your and, and, picks? And, yeah, and teaches them to okay. be individualistic. So. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I better jump to my number two. I figured you'd be going with Flaubert, so uh, I am going to meet strength with strength and go with a uh, a whole troop of 19th century novelists <laughs> uh, led by my general, Jane Austen. Uh, and behind her i've got dickens Uh the brontes george Eliot, thackeray trollope uh lewis carroll you know some others i think these hold up pretty well even against flaubert jane doesn't really need to take a backseat to anyone she's so sharp so observant so witty her plots are so good they move forward so well she's the one sitting quietly in the corner while the blowhards who can't stop talking take up all the oxygen in the center of the room, the ones that you're, you know, the garrulous ones that you've criticized already, the Dickenses. If you wander over to that corner, you'll hear her Mm. remarks and you think, my God, she's the smartest one here. So Pride and Prejudice, Emma, Sense and Sensibility, the world would be Mm. greatly impoverished without these books. And she's got, you know, a whole century's worth of... (laughs) 
of pretty good novelists backing her up. These are people, you know, this, this swarming with characters and psychological insights and big descriptions of big places. This is make a pot of tea and collapse into the sofa writing. Yeah, I mean, Austin's kind of my kryptonite. I, <laughs> I, what, the first, I, I, the first time I read Emma, I think yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how good this was. Yeah, so, and how funny she is. Yeah. I, I feel like, I feel like she could be on this podcast and just chiming right in. Not that we're you know spectacular or anything, but it, it wouldn't feel dated. You know, yeah. if she had a podcast, I would listen to it, and I wouldn't be like, oh yeah, that that old fuddy-duddy Jane, I'd be like, oh, she's so funny and, and, uh, and, and sharp. This, I have this image of her manning a cannon and opening fire. Mm. <laughs> yep. She's, yeah. She, <laughs> she's... So maybe I need like, you know, I need superpowers, which is why with my third pick, I'll go with Albert Camus. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Which is kind of my wild card. And I underrated I, him, but I just did an episode on Camus. It's going to run uh, a couple yeah. weeks before this one. I mean, you know, oh, very the, good. The, the the novel of ideas, the 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 urgency of mm-hmm. a book like The Stranger and The Pest. I just, you know, he there there was nobody like him. Yeah, and the the fearlessness in which he wrote. I mean. It was maybe my first uh, French literary love, reading The Stranger. Yeah. And I think the question of not only Brits, but American authors, you know, trying to tackle difficult questions and bringing them to life. Yeah. It's so hard to do. And Camus did it with every every work. He makes some of the writers we've been talking about look like they're kind of bogged down with characters and plots and the conventions yeah. of fiction, you know, to, to get ideas out there, to make people think about something in a different way, but to use some of the trappings of fiction. So it's not like it's, you know, dry and, and like a, a systematic philosophy. He, he was, a, he was great at that. And it it's, he's a great pick. Yeah, have him swoop him from, down from the sky, just annihilating your army. <laughs> hold me close and hold me fast. The magic spell you cast. This is love yours. When you kiss me, heaven sighs. And though I close my eyes. I still have your roses When you press me to your heart I'm in a world apart A world where was a bloom And when you speak and sing from above Every day Well, I will. I'm going to jump over my number three because, again, (laughs) I'm going to take I'm going to match strength with strength. So Uh I'm going to move to 20th century modernists and their progeny. So this is going to be kind of 1920 or so to 1980. So my general here is Virginia Woolf. But mm. I've got backing her up. I've got George Orwell. I've got either Elliot or Auden. You know the the famous mm-hmm. thing that Auden said, or 
where they asked him if, you know, he was, he grew up in England and then he moved to America and T.S. Eliot had done the opposite. And they asked Auden if he was American or English. And he said, well, whatever T.S. Eliot is, I guess I'm the opposite. <laughs> uh, so I get one of those two. I get uh, Philip Larkin. I get Graham Greene. I get Henry Green. I get Iris Murdoch, Kingsley Amos. Uh, Agatha Christie I'm throwing in for a little popularity. Roald Dahl I was going to throw in, but you just told me he was anti-Semitic in our last episode. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, Harold Pinter, Tolkien, uh, A.A. Milne, uh, Lennon McCartney, if you count their lyrics. So this mm-hmm. is where the novel grew up. This is where we started to look at the world and say, holy hell, this place is a nightmare, isn't it? We're very far from Eden. We've got mechanized war and poison gas and nuclear weapons. We've got philosophers killing God, out-of-control bureaucracy, identities being smashed and, and thwarted by institutions, corporate life run amok. All of this is is in the air, and novels need to match it. The forms of novels need to match it, too. And Virginia Woolf is on the case. She was as sharp a critic as she was uh, as glorious a novelist, and she's backed by some of these other true heavyweights. This is the thing. George Orwell, you know that if he was French, you would have him in your five. He's in my list. He's just hanging around. He's not even He's not even one of the generals. He's just in the tent working the radio, overqualified. So he's... he's uh, he's. It's like my army is swooping in on the wings of avenging angels. I guess I guess your army, though, is too similar to each other. Mm. And my next pick... Shakespeare, Jane Austen, and Virginia Woolf. The king of individuality, Charles Baudelaire. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're reaching. You're reaching. He's okay. Promote him if you want. Probably the greatest poet um, ever. (laughs) And and I I mean, of course, I could read from Flowers of Evil. Yeah. Or Paris Spleen, but I I think his his prose poems are amazing, and his descriptions of the 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 different classes, the underclass in Paris, and capturing city life. I mean, they in his poem Crowds, he writes, "It is not given to everyone to take a bath in the multitude. To enjoy the crowd is an art." And I just mm. feel like he he raised poetry to a level of just the highest art. I mean, dispense with fiction, dispense with painting. Um, everyone should return to poetry. Mm. The life he lived is just sent, set the benchmark for many of the people who flocked to Paris and made Paris the, the center of culture, you know, in 1910 and 1920s. I just think, you know, he lived the, he lived the life of, of an artist in a way that you know, a lot of artists shy away yeah. from, you know, being in the public eye. And he, I mean, he he was just, he, he embraced life in a way that I think exemplified the, the French attitude toward art that I would argue is superior to yeah. the British English attitude. Well, when you, you, I mean, Shakespeare is a bit of a different, you know, thing because of the theater, but What's really coming across here, I think, is the Parisian cafe uh, with Camus yeah. and Baudelaire versus, you know, England. I guess it would be a cottage or, or the pubs. Yeah, I guess or the pubs. But yeah, I guess that's a good meeting space. But I don't picture the the literary life being as active in the pubs as the 
as it is in the Parisian cafe. Yeah, I mean, like Bartz talks about, you have your home, you have your work, and the cafe is your third space that is as equally as as important as your home and your work. Yeah, which is just an incredible idea of thinking of like this space. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we are halfway through. Let's take a quick break and come back with the rest of our England versus France. Okay, so it's interesting that you have Baudelaire and you made a lot of claims for him. Greatest poet ever, I think you said, and, and that he sort of uh, put the focus on poetry because I am going to match strength with strength here. I'm going to the Romantic Poets and led by my general, William Wordsworth. But look who's behind him. Coleridge, Keats, Byron, <laughs> Shelley, Blake. I'm going to throw in Mary Shelley, too, as an honorary romantic poet for Frankenstein. I could have chosen any of those to be my general of this uh, this battalion. What an amazing time. What a transformative time. It's The move to romanticism is really one of the great shifts in the history of poetry, to take in nature and to view it as sublime and to move away from from the stately prose-like poems of, you know, celebrating a, a mayor or a, a, an event, that the romantics make everything else that came before look so workmanlike and cerebral. And they really brought in this, uh, mm-hmm. I think they changed the way we look at poets of, you know, that poets need to feel something, that we we ask that of poetry now and, and poets, don't just think about something, but feel it live and love and open up your vein and bleed onto the page. Be willing to die for your art. These coughing, drug-addled wretches were gazing out at the landscape and writing like bandits. And it's them that we can thank for hundreds of years of poetry and poets as they traipse onto the battlefield wearing their scarves and aviator goggles. I don't know. I don't know why I'm imagining them wearing that. Maybe that's, <laughs> They're all aviators, in my view, standing by the fireplace and threatening to put a dagger in their hearts. My one knock against the romantics is that they, they, they kind of overdo it with the beauty. You know, life, life yeah. is not beautiful. Yeah. Life, you know, but I, I, I'll be the first to admit that Mont Blanc is a is, is one of the greatest poems. And yeah, I mean, I can I, I can go poem by poem, and uh, you know, I, oh. I respect your army. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For my last pick, I I I, I pick Stendhal. It was hard to pick between oh, Stendhal yeah. and Balzac, but yep. I, Stendhal to me, you know, I picked him because I just think that. The, the substance of his novels mm-hmm. represents the, the the real history of France. That that maybe it's the greatest nation on earth. I'll just throw that out there. Yeah, and <laughs> France's history is is more important than English history. Mm. Um, and the, I mean the position on continental Europe yeah. meant that it was the site of so many important historical events: the French Revolution, mm. you know. The religious, you know, struggles and so many wars, and I think Stendhal for me is really just this, the 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 access, the the touch point of so many different things going on in French philosophy and Napoleon. Yeah, I mean the yeah French nationalism, which is fascinating. You know, normally we we associate nationalism now we nowadays we do with something negative. But it, there really was a sense of, you know, what it meant to be French. 
Mm. And I'm not sure there is, you know, a real notion of what it means to be British. Uh, yeah, George Orwell. Mm. He wrote about it. Yeah, but there's a whole colonial. You, mm. I think England's colonial guilt is is far greater than it the doesn't, French colonial guilt. It doesn't feel as deep. I mean, when Orwell talked about, you know, what it was like to be English, yeah. it kind of feels like, you know, they talk about the pub and they talk about uh, playing darts and they talk about, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they talk about a stiff upper lip and, you know, it yeah. it, it doesn't feel like they're talking yeah, about French, blood. Yeah, Fran- France, we're talking about the, 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 the basic rights of men. Yeah, and they're, they're, yeah. they feel being French in their blood. Yeah. English, it, it feels like they, they feel being English in their customs. And you have these aphorisms. You have the, the pretension. I haven't even touched upon the pretension, the French pretension that I love. Um, <laughs> right. Stendhal's Red and the Black, each chapter, yeah. I forgot, has an aphorism. And the aphorism at the start of part two, which I love, it says, uh, a writer, Saint Buve, says she is not pretty she wears no rouge Mm. (laughs) (laughs) well the other thing is sometimes england can have kind of a uh a bit of an inferiority complex um you know english writers will love french writers but sometimes they'll also say you know we're not as we're not as great as the american writers are or you know, they'll look to Ireland and Scotland or I don't know. There is something a little bit. I have a feeling that my army could be in trouble, even though we might <laughs> outnumber yours, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, the just the confidence, the self-confidence, I think, would serve you well in this battle. However, that said, I think I've already won, but I'm going to pile on here and give you my fifth general. So this battalion is my contemporary heavyweights uh, Mm -hmm. battalion led by my general, Zadie Smith. It's got uh, (laughs) Salman Rushdie is in here, Martin Amos, Julian Barnes, Ishiguro, uh, Hilary Mantel, Ian McEwen. This is where we see the the strength of diversity arriving, diversity of individuals as well as thought. There's a bit of of Mm -hmm. let's catch our breath here, I think, as the industry kind of declines. I think contemporary literature now, it's got a bit of a uh, Mm -hmm. a feeling of, you know, it's no longer as prominent as it once was. But what they do in this new landscape is they give us a kind of quiet repose, keen insight, Ideas are bubbling over even as the novel shrinks. So they kind of suit our times. This is the, the crouch of children under desks, terrified by nuclear holocaust and the Cold War giving way to, to the relative peace, and then the crouching under the, of the children under desks for school shootings. And they, they have taken us through terrorism, and uh, you know the whole Salman Rushdie affair was, was of its time, and now we're in the age of coronavirus, and they apply good sense wisdom, humor, and enough flawed humanity to make those ideas go down easy. So, wow. I I even, I know you probably had some honorable mentions. I had a whole division that I didn't even use, my 18th century division with Pope and Dryden and Dr. Johnson and Defoe and Richardson and Fielding and Smollett, where they kind of invented the novel there. I left them at home just to to boost morale, to write pamphlets, to <laughs> and take charge of the the effort on the home front. So I don't know, Mike. How do you feel? Do you feel like your your picks were good? 
You didn't take Victor like Hugo. Did, I thought you I might take. I feel like you did a classic British thing of cheating <laughs> by bringing out everyone at all at once. You know, and I, I kept a true bench. I had Dumas and Victor yeah. Hugo and Sartre and Beauvoir. Yeah. On the bench, Jules and, uh, Verne and Balzac and Rimbaud, uh, Racine, Verlaine. Your bench gets pretty thin yeah. pretty quick. But what? Rabelais and Voltaire and Guy yeah. de Maupassant and yeah. Moliere. Yeah. <laughs> I think and don't forget Michel Houlebeck, you know. And that's that's, that's where I wanted to get <laughs> that's where I wanted to give you a little bit of credit because I since I don't read in French, I figured, you know, a lot of the uh some of the more minor characters I'd probably be more familiar with if I if I was French. But it does seem like I do the, the one area, let's see. So I feel like Flaubert and Proust were the two that I would have wanted in mine. I, I I give Jane Austen, that's at least a tie, I'd say, with Flaubert. But Flaubert's awfully good. But the problem is Shakespeare is like a nuclear weapon. He's like a mm-hmm. he's like a Gatling gun on a field of horses and <laughs> cavalry at sabers yeah but maybe shakespeare the cottage industry and not shakespeare you know the person you reach for ah you know yeah well wait what do you mean that people don't read i mean how many people read shakespeare compared to you know Mm. Camus? yeah well you know or stendhal well, I think a lot more people read Shakespeare than Stendhal. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't think. Uh, I I'll give you Camus because I think that's uh, he's read a lot in high schools, but a lot of that is because the prose is readable. I think Shakespeare. I mean, come on, hack. Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet. Heck. <laughs> <laughs> multiple um, hacks. They were. They were. You know. So I did feel like you know. Here's here's the thing that I thought. I didn't take Ireland and Scotland, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't know. They might have joined your side. Yeah, exactly. Imagine. I mean, yeah. if if they're fighting with us, you're in trouble. But if you get James Joyce mm-hmm. and Yeats and and Samuel Beckett and uh, J.K. Rowling and Oscar Wilde, and I mean, that could have been. Eesh. But hand to hand combat. I mean, I kept Balzac on my bench, but <laughs> I think you know. People hand to hand combat Balzac yeah. over Jane Austen. I mean, as much yeah. as I love Jane Austen, I mean, you know, you read Balzac's Pierre Giraud. I mean, it's yeah. it's well, incredible. You'd have, you'd have Verlaine. I mean, didn't he stab somebody or Rimbaud? You'd have, I mean, yeah. Baudelaire. He was a kind of a tough character, wasn't he? I mean, I was just reading that you know, uh, P and V, the the couple that translate. Um, yep. all the all the Russians Larissa was saying that when she met her husband she couldn't believe he had never read the Three Musketeers <laughs> and she she made him read it immediately because she said there was no way I was marrying someone who had not read the Three Musketeers <laughs> <laughs> right but, and there you didn't even need him yep well I kept him on my bench Okay, not bad. Well, we're going to try this with some others. I think uh, we'll try the Cold War might be one. Maybe we should do the Civil War, American uh, North versus American South. We will uh, save that for another day. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. 
going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, a battle royale. Or maybe we should call it a royal battle now. Don't you think? Although battle royale isn't actually French. It comes from English. Some old English boxers made it up. Anyway, I think English kind of trounced France, sadly. But my thanks to Mike Palindrome, El Presidente himself, for joining us and giving it his best shot. You can learn more about the show at historyofliterature.com and join us on Facebook at, I think, facebook.com slash historyofliterature. I think that's where it is. Support the show at patreon.com slash literature or historyofliterature.com slash shop, where you can buy virtual coffees. I hope everyone is doing well, staying safe, and taking care. We'll be back with some James Baldwin and some William Faulkner coming up soon. So make sure you tell all your friends and loved ones. Maybe your deepest loved ones. Loved ones. Those long-lost loves you always kind of loved in secret. But now that you're getting older, it's time to tell them what you really think. Finally, I love you. I've always loved you. It's you. 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 You're the one who's stolen my heart. It's you. But you can't say that, can you? That might shock the relationship you currently have with them. Which is to like one of their posts on Facebook every six months or so. So you do this. Go to their house at night and break in. You find their phone. You log in. If you need to use their thumbprint... You do this while they're sleeping, but be very careful, very gentle as you pull their hand and place it on their phone ID circle. You must be careful. This isn't going to work if they wake up. They might fire a gun at you and kill you. We don't want that. That's counterproductive. So you log into the phone. You find that maybe you guessed their password. Maybe it's their birthday. Maybe it's your birthday. Isn't that interesting? You find the podcasting app. You subscribe to the History of Literature podcast. Well, who are we kidding? They've probably already subscribed. They've probably already joined the millions of people who have downloaded the show. Chances are they are subscribed already. But let's say they haven't on the off chance. You subscribe for them. And then you say nothing. You sneak away an act of love. Years from now, you'll get your chance. You'll hear that they've become addicted to the show, and their life has changed for the better. That's when you strike. You drop them a note and say, hey, that show that has made you a better person? Me too. Are we too good for everyone else now? And of course, the answer will be yes, and the two of you will find each other at last, and you'll ride off into the sunset together, and I'm telling you, I get it. You're using me and my show for this, but I don't mind. I'm glad to be used when it's for causes like this one, for causes like love, true love at last. Go ahead, use me. What could be better? Use away, young Romeo. Chew me up and spit me out, dear Juliet. The show is here for you, as always, as ever. We do have at least one marriage under our belts here at the History of... Wait, we've run out of music, haven't we? <laughs> Can we get a second helping orchestra? The Jack Wills... <laughs> oh, man. I'm having trouble talking today. Jack Wilson Orchestra, can you help us out here? 
go. Thank you, orchestra. We do have at least one marriage under our belts. That was a while ago. I'd like to up that to one a year if I could. That would make me happy. Maybe even one a month. So get cracking, people. Time to connect. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.